Hello and welcome to the Health Advocate podcast episode 7. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I am the Director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research here at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Diebel Institute, we are the research arm of AAHA and our mission is to help ensure that evidence is a cornerstone for health policy development in Australia. We like to do this through forming practical connections between researchers, policymakers and practitioners and also by creating opportunities for our university partners to translate research into good health policy and practice. Today I'm speaking with Victoria McCrenna. Victoria is a PhD student from the Australian Institute for Health Services Innovation at the Queensland University of Technology. She has a PhD scholarship with the Capital Market CRC Health Market Quality Group and was a recipient of a 2017 Diebel Institute Summer Research Scholarship. For those of you listening, Tori's brief is titled Active Disinvestment in Low Value Care in Australia Will Improve Patient Outcomes and Reduce Waste and it's available on the AAHA website. Tori, thanks for joining us today. I believe you're about to submit your PhD thesis. How are you feeling? Um, it feels pretty good, actually. You know, I haven't quite finished, but it's good to be able to see the end is in sight now. After three years, that's a pretty good feeling. Well, best of luck with the last few weeks or, or months, and I'm sure it will all go well. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the research you've done for your PhD thesis? Yeah, sure. Um, so my research is about identifying high-value care for coronary artery disease. So that's the disease of the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle. So when um, fat or plaque builds up, in those vessels, they get narrowed, which means that there's less blood flow and less oxygen to the heart muscle. So that's what gives people chest pain and can lead to heart attacks and death. So coronary artery disease is still the leading cause of death in Australia, and we spend a lot of time and money treating it. Um, and it's important to know which treatments generate the best health outcomes for their costs, because we're currently spending around 10 to 12% of um, our healthcare budget annually, so more than $11 billion. And it, the disease affects about half a million Australians. So you can see we're spending a lot of money. Um, and if we're doing that, we want to make sure that we're getting the best value in terms of what patient health outcomes are for that money. So my research is about trying to figure that out, what put the pieces of the puzzle together, I guess. And so I, I guess putting that in context, we have a limited health budget. If we didn't have a limited health budget, we could do everything for everyone, but we don't. So we need to make choices. And that's what health economics is about. So I'm a health economist. And so I look at the long-term costs and long-term health outcomes of for in, in this particular case for people with heart disease and try to figure out what the best way to spend the money is. So, you know, we have a certain amount of money. What can we do with it to get the best health outcomes for the patient? Did you have any uh, major findings come out of your work? So what I've found is that we're currently doing a lot of, so the three main treatments are uh, medical therapy on its own, stents, and surgery. Um, so we started doing a lot more stents when they became available in of the early 90s so between the early 90s and the early 2000s we started doing a lot more stents because they're much less invasive than um, doing surgery but we also started doing them in a lot more patients so the overall I guess numbers of people having an intervention increased as well as increasing that particular procedure and there has been a little bit of a question about whether that doing that in pe people who have stable disease is a good idea or is actually beneficial in terms of symptom relief so we know that putting a stent in a patient with stable disease doesn't improve their life expectancy. So the reason for doing it is you know, whether they have um, an improvement in their 
symptom relief, so their quality of life improves. So, sorry, Tori, can you just explain to us a bit more what stable disease means? Yeah, so stable disease, so coronary artery disease is a chronic disease. So once you have coronary artery disease, you have that forever. Um, so the, the same kinds of treatments for treating an acute episode, which might be a heart attack. There are other forms of acute coronary syndrome, but a heart attack is what most people would think of. So I'm talking about not what to do if someone's having a heart attack, but what to do to manage their symptoms and quality of life as sort of dealing with the chronic nature of the disease. So, yeah, so treating people using stents for stable disease is something that has been questioned recently um, because we know that it doesn't improve patients' length of life. So the primary reason for doing it then is um, for symptom relief. That's not the same as if someone's having a heart attack, then putting a stent in can be life-saving. So it's, it's a different set of patients, essentially. So my research has really shown that it's not cost-effective to put stents in people with stable disease, at least as an initial therapy, because it doesn't, from the evidence that I have, it doesn't improve their quality of life enough to justify the additional cost. And people don't really like talking about additional costs, but the way I've looked at it is basically instead of spending the money on stents, we could spend it on something else and we'd get better health outcomes for patients. What do you mean by something else? So, for example, um, so medical therapy is cost-effective. So instead of doing lots of stents on, pe- on people with stable disease, that money could be spent somewhere else in the health system and generate more health if want of a better term because the whole health budget is limited that's an important so by spending money on stents essentially we're taking money away from something else where patients could get a better better outcomes or better improvements in their quality of life that's really what it's about so what are you curious about right now Um, I'm curious to see if there will be any changes to policy as a result of my research um, and the value-based healthcare agenda more generally um, because that's being talked about a lot and people seem to be really enthusiastic about instead of funding, our current funding model is activity-based, so you do a procedure, you get funded to do that. But what would be better is if we funded funded procedures or interventions, whatever, based on the health improvement that patients get from that. I don't think it's going to be something that happens overnight, but it will be it'll be really interesting to see what happens as a result of sort of more and more evidence gathering about whether it is good for patients to, to use stents, for example, or to, to do that kind of invent, intervention in this if they've only got stable disease. There was a trial done last, well, the results of the trial um, came out last year um, from a group in London who did a trial of putting in a stent versus pretending to put in a stent or so sham procedure, and they didn't find any difference between mm-hmm. the two groups in terms of the um, and the way they measured the health outcomes for patients, which was basically um, a standardised treadmill test. So you run on the treadmill until you get chest pain, and the two groups were the same. So the people who had a stent had only marginally but not statistically significant difference to those who didn't have a stent. So that sort of added to this weight of evidence that we have 
sort of suggesting we should probably spend more time and effort and money on getting people's medical therapy right so that they don't have to have these interventional procedures. So you've talked about the importance of getting evidence into policy. You spent six weeks with us in Canberra through our Health Policy Scholarship Program working on an issues brief. What were your expectations of the scholarship? I guess I was expecting to get some insights into how Canberra works and um, a policymaker's perspective on evidence in healthcare, um, because from outside of Canberra, it can be quite difficult to understand what's going on and how it works, because you only see certain parts of, of the intricacies of Canberra on the news. I suppose as health services researchers or as health economists, we find it really frustrating. We produce this great quality evidence, or you know, we think it's the best thing, we should change practice, and we show it to people and nothing happens. So I wanted to sort of understand what the barriers were and try to understand what's going on, you know, what the minister or the the advisor to the health minister is dealing with and why some of our, some of the information doesn't seem to be going through. And so what did you take away from the experience? I took away that politicians are really, really busy. I mean, (laughs) and I guess that probably, that should go without saying, but at the same time, Unless you see it, you don't you don't realise how busy they are. And also they're dealing with lots of competing interests. They don't they're not interested only in my research about coronary artery disease, for example. They've got lots of people talking to them all the time. And so and they, they have to pick out of that what they can in the limited amount of time that they have with people. I also learnt that if you do manage to get time with uh, an advisor or minister, basically anyone who's in or around um, Parliament House. You need you need to be really well prepared because their meetings often run over, and you're probably not going to get the amount of time that you thought you would. So it's really important to be clear and concise, and have you know a really clear message up front. And if they have time, you can you can dig down into the de- into the details. I also learnt that there's a lot of turmoil and turnover of people, which makes things even more difficult. So when I was there at the beginning of last year, um, the health minister changed. And, of course, that creates this whole other thing um, that is, you know, getting to know the health, the new health minister, briefing the, that new person on where we, you know, and everybody is trying to do that, not just, not just the, the people that I was working with. So that was really interesting to see, actually, because I hadn't, it's not something that I really was aware of. And obviously, we've seen all that kind of thing in the news that, you know, our prime minister can change it at the drop of a hat, too. So <laughs> a lot of it can be about timing. And I also, um, I, I suppose it was interesting, but not unexpected to see how respected the AHA was within Canberra circles that was really cool to see because I didn't really understand how those connections worked either so it was really great to be part of an organization that people respected Um, so going in they already had kind of a a level of understanding of where you were coming from you weren't just some new person that they didn't know or it wasn't you know so you got we, we had access to to people that without that reputation we might not have had access to so that was really great. I'm glad you enjoyed the experience. Do you think it's changed the way you think about your own research? Uh, yeah, I think it has. I think it's made me think more about how to communicate my findings with people who are time poor. And so really think of thinking about, you know, obviously I have to write academic papers as well, but 
um, from a policy perspective, it really made me think, you know, I need to be really clear. These people, whoever is reading it may not have much of a you know, background in what I'm talking about. So I need to make it digestible so they can pick it up, understand the key points straight away, because they probably won't have time for much more than that. And um, as I said before, you know, if they do, you can fill them in on the details. So it's, you know, um, and that's not something that academics are trained to do we're trained to be really detailed and go through every you know little important thing or limitation so yeah that was that was quite fun to do as well it's a different perspective and it's yeah it's nice to be able to communicate in that way and to your last question you recently attended the international hospital federation's world hospital congress in brisbane what work did you hear about there that you found most inspiring um, this is a really tough question, actually, because I had a great time. It was really inspiring. There were like there were really great speakers across all three days. I suppose because they gave a different perspective to what I'm used to hearing. I really enjoyed the patient perspectives. There was a woman who explained what it was like to navigate the hospital if you have poor vision, and I thought back to the fact that every time I go to a hospital, I get lost and I can see perfectly well. Um, so one of my supervisors is a clinician, so I often have to go to his office for a meeting and every time I get lost. So I can't even imagine how <laughs> what it would be like. So that was really, um, yeah, that was really interesting. I was also really impressed that both the Queensland and federal health ministers seem to be on board with value-based care because that's what I do. And so that was that was pretty cool to hear them both speak about that so passionately. So obviously that message is getting through and that was cool. That was really great to hear. I also found lots of the smaller sessions were really interesting. It just gave lots of different people a chance to share a little bit about what they're doing. There were some people doing really great data analytics work. So uh, someone was assessing hospital performance across, so all of the hospitals across an entire state. Um, and they had some really great infographics and it was just really, yeah, it was really interesting to see what they were able to do with the data that they had. One of the keynotes was about how much data we have and ha and but the fact that we don't really get that much out of it. But I felt that what I saw in day three really showed that we can use it and lots of the innovative ways people were using the data that they had access to. Um, and I think that's going to be even more more important into the future. So that was exciting to see. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tori. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Health Advocate podcast. If you'd like to find out more information on the Deagle Institute for Health Policy Research Summer Scholarship Program or to find out more about the work we do at the Institute, visit the AAHA website.